0: Oh, well, what a wonderful day it's already been, right? And turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. It just so happens that this is a passage speaking about baptism as well, uh, but the baptism of the Spirit, we'll look at that together this, this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. There's a parable, a, a, a story, I don't know the truthfulness of it, I don't know how to chase it down, but there's a story of a of a rescue station along this coast of a very rocky area where a lot of ships had gone down and uh, there was this just a small group of people they built a hut there they rescued a lot of people who had been in shipwreck uh, so uh, good were they doing that so successful that uh, the, uh, they became famous and other people wanted to join them and so uh, that little group grew and they built a bigger house there and more and more people joined them But as time went on, uh, the group there kind of changed its focus and more and more joined just kind of like a social thing, kind of like a club. And uh, eventually they built a new building, they had new furnishings, lots and lots of people that had nothing to do with rescuing anybody uh, would join their group. And then one day they had a very large shipwreck not far from where they were, and they rescued a number of people and brought them into the clubhouse, made a big mess out of everything, and the club members got upset. They said, we don't want to do this, we want to remember the past, but we don't want to be involved in this kind of a messy situation. There was a big split in the group, and and those that wanted to rescue people at sea went off and built another little hut, and the rest stayed behind at the clubhouse. As time went on, that new hut began to grow and had the same thing until it became more of a social club than a rescue station. And then that split again and they did another one and another one. And according to the story, uh, if you go down along that coastline today, you'll find a number of little clubs, but nobody rescues anybody anymore. They still have a lot of shipwrecks, but almost everybody drowns. I read that story when I was back in Bible college in a book on pastoral counseling, warning pastors of the... The probability and the danger of mission drift in the church. With a church that started out doing what it was supposed to do, but eventually becomes something it never was meant to be, simply a social club. There was that warning given there. Now the Lord himself knew that that was a danger, and so he gives us many teachings in the Word of God of what the church should be, how it should function. And one of the things he did to do that, to, to explain it to us, is to give us numerous metaphors of what the church is like. For example, we've already seen in chapter 3, the church is a sanctuary, a temple, is indwelt by the Spirit of God Himself. We find in other places, the church is like a family. In other places, it's like a bride, like a marriage, like a wedding. If you want to hear our exposition on that, it'll take three minutes, come to the wedding this weekend, and I'll try to do that for you. A family, Christ is is the head of the family, and we are the bride of Christ. And then we have the, the metaphor of the flock, He is the great shepherd, we are His sheep. And he guides us. All these are beautiful. All these are helpful in understanding the purpose and the ministry of the church. But there's no better one than the one that we have here, the body of Christ, that we are the body of Christ. He is the head. We are the body. And all the way through chapter 12, that metaphor is being used one way or the other, playing off the idea of the physical bodies that we have and how the church is like that as well. And so as we look at that today today, I want to uh, focus on something uh, concerning the unity of the church. This chapter uh, has been dealing so far basically with the diversity of the church, the body of Christ and its diversity, how each of us are gifted differently and have unique uh, ministry and opportunities in the body. He's going to come back to that theme later, but in these two verses he goes to the issue of the unity of the church, the fact that there is one body, one church, and uh, Christ is that head. So I want to look at two truths with you today concerning that. First of all, the fact of the unity, the fact of the oneness. And secondly, I want to show you the means of how I got there. In verse 12, we have the fact of the unity, a unity in diversity. It says in verse 12, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Everyone, I'm going to give you something extremely deep and profound here for a moment, every one of us have a body, that's deep, right, that's deep. every one of us have many members in that body, many parts of that body, uh, but none of us have more than one body, nobody ever comes up to you and says, how's your bodies doing, uh, you only have one body, and uh, you may like it, you may not like it, but you only have one, okay, deep stuff, right, you said, well, I'm glad I got up this morning for that, want to hear that stuff, right, well, as we think about it, for my body, my physical body to be healthy, uh, all the different members of my body, all the different parts have to be functioning as designed and in unity with the rest of my body. Uh, the Lord has made our body so, so detailed and so wonderful that there are hundreds or even thousands of parts that have to function properly. If any part goes rogue, uh, we're not healthy. And if the body parts don't work together, uh, we're not healthy. And so we find in the the passage here that we're looking at concerning the body that in order to have good health physically, the body must be each part do what it's designed to do and to do it in unity and harmony with the rest of the body. So in a sense, good health is simply the harmony of the body, the body working in harmony. That's true physically. And now we look at that metaphor as he brings it to the body of Christ and the fact that the church itself is one body of Christ composed of many parts many believers, past, present, and future, all the way from the, from Acts chapter two and the day of Pentecost to the time Christ takes his church to be with himself at the rapture. That is the church of Christ. It's one church, not many many churches, one church, one body. That's really not open for discussion. So while, we're, uh, while there's only one body, there's many members, and now the analogy tells us many things about the church. So I wanna look at some of those with you. I want you to go to Colossians chapter one for a moment and look at uh, a couple, three verses there. That's going to help us understand this better. Colossians chapter one. The first thing I want to mention is that this body of Christ, this church, all His church universal as well as local, belongs to Jesus Christ. It is His. Verse one, verse eighteen of chapter one. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the head. Uh, he is. Uh, there is no other head. That means he controls the church. He, he determines what the church is to be. Uh, he gives out the orders. The body is not to rebel against the head. If the body rebels against the head, then, uh, then the, the, we don't function very well, do we? Now, let me give you a, a simple example. Uh, for most of us, first thing in the morning, we wake up and our head says, get up. We've got things to do. We've got places to go. Get up. And if you're like me, my body says, no way. I don't want to get up. I want to lay here a while. The body says, get up. And the bo- my head says, get up. My body says, I don't want to. Now, I know there's a few of you in this room that jump out of bed first thing in the morning, ready to meet the day, excited about everything. I consider you mutants. <laughs> it just isn't right that people feel that way. You know. So, so the head says, we've got to do something. The body says, no. Eventually, the head wins. and We get up and we do our thing. Well, we find that that's similar to the church. The church, the church has the head of Christ. And when the, as, far as, as, as much as the body is in harmony and in obedience to the head, so there is good health in the body of Christ and in our own lives as well. Colossians chapter 2, verse 19 also says that Christ gives life to the body, 219, and not holding fast to the head, he's talking about these false teachers, they're not holding fast to the head From whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. All life comes from the head, Jesus Christ. If you cut a head off of somebody's body, the body dies. Uh, You can cut the tail off of certain lizards and they'll grow back. You cut their head off, they're done, right? Uh, Without the, the body of Christ, without the head, holding fast to the head, there is no life. Uh, We grow in Christ as we are living in obedience to the Head, as we are connected to the Head. Our church is the same way. We grow as we are connected with the Head who is Jesus Christ Himself. How does the Lord then guide the church as the Head? Does He send messages to the elder board on Thursday nights and say, hey, here's what you should do? Does He give visions to the pastor and hunches and so forth? No. Here's how He does it. Chapter 3 and verse 16. 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Now, this verse is usually used for us personally, and I think it can be, and it should be, that I should let the word of Christ richly dwell within me. But I think if you look at it closely, he's really talking about the body of Christ, the church itself. The church functions as it should as the word of God richly dwells within us tabernacles among us as we are living in obedience to the word of God to that extent we are living as Christ wants us to live and so the, the life comes from Christ and he leads us through the word now of course he doesn't tell the leadership of the church whether we should buy a van or to have what time we ought to have our services or all these details but he sets parameters for how the church is to function And so that means that local churches all across this town, all across the country, all across the world may have different personalities. They they may function somewhat differently. They may emphasize certain things differently. They may sing different kinds of songs and so forth. But there are boundaries that God has laid down for what the church is to be that we cannot go beyond and be the church. Years ago, we used to take our young people to a camp up in Wisconsin. And this camp did not have a swimming pool. They had a lake. And so uh, they, they, they mapped off what area, cleaned it out, made sure it was okay, and put a, a raft out about 75 yards out there, and then roped off a particular area of safety. This is the boundaries. So when the young people went out to swim, uh, they could go out within those boundaries and swim, uh, and, but they were not to go beyond the boundaries. As long as they stayed within the parameters of the boundaries, all was well. Some kids were adventuresome and they swam all the way out to the raft, jumped off the raft and so forth. Others were more fearful. They piddled around on the edges and didn't do much. Some were all over the place. And so we have that kind of a, a thing going on, this picture of, a, of the camp, of the, of the swimming area where people were doing all sorts of things. But they were all in the parameters. They were all within the boundaries laid out. And so we have the same thing with local churches, with individual Christians, we, we are very different from one another, we can be, it's fine, but we're always within the parameters of what God has said a church should be, and what God says it should be, and what does God say about the church? Well, very quickly, uh, it's, uh, He gives us a leadership structure, He tells us how the church should function as far as its leadership. It tells us what we are the pillar of the support of truth, that means of the one, of one, one of the most important things we do is we stand for the truth of God's word. In a world that is constantly shifting, where with every administration we have a new set of rules, where all sorts of people on Twitter have all their ideas, we have the one rock solid truth that never changes, and the church must be about the business of proclaiming that one truth. The church also is to preach the gospel and to preach the the word of God. That's, our, that's what we're called to do. We're, we're also called to baptize and do the Lord's Supper. These are, these are stakes in the ground, so to speak, that point to who we are and what we believe. Baptism says we believe that Christ saved us by His, by, by his work on the cross alone and His resurrection, and we have trusted Him for that, the, and we identify with that. The Lord's Supper reminds us week after week when we take it that we are His people and what Christ has done for us, and He's coming again someday. The church is to partake in those things. The church edifies the saints, as we're looking at in this passage of Scripture. It, it, we build one another up. That's one of the main tasks we have within the body. And then we worship Jesus Christ. There are some, maybe most of the parameters that we cannot go outside of. If you go outside of those parameters, you've gone outside of the parameters that Christ has given us for the local church. Christ is the head. Secondly, not only does the church belong to Christ, as we go back to our passage and he's the head, secondly, there's no competition in the body. The church at Corinth was in competition. Uh, Different ones wanted to have the showy gifts. They wanted to be outstanding. They wanted to be the leader. And there was a great deal of jealousy and competition and selfishness going on in this church. We've seen that all the way through our study of 1 Corinthians. And yet, if we are the body of Christ, the one body, as he talks about here, we're one body, yet many members, if that's true, there's no competition, in the body, of Jesus Christ, I read a statistic, the other day, about the Southern Baptist Convention, Uh, that's the largest, Protestant denomination, in the world, they have 47,000, plus churches, worldwide, they have 14,500 members, no that's wrong, 14 million, 14.5 million members, about half of those are still alive. That's just a little joke for you Southern Baptist types. Anyway, they have a lot of members. They have 37 million adherents, whatever that means. But here's the interesting thing. 25% of all Southern Baptist churches are smaller than 25 people. 50% of all Southern Baptist churches are smaller than 50 people. 66% or two-thirds of Southern Baptist churches are smaller than 74. And 83% are smaller than 125. And that means that the vast majority of Southern Baptist churches are small. Now, that's statistics. What do you do with statistics? Well, some have said, well, if you're small, you're doing something wrong. You can't be small and be honoring Christ. You must be doing something wrong. Matter of fact, one of the best known uh, preachers in America today stood up a couple years ago and said, if your church is under 250 people, you are singing to go there. You must go to a mega church. To a small church is out of God's will. And that was his, what he said. Now, when he said that, it went, it went, <laughs> it went viral. Uh, he walked it back after he got a lot of attack, but that's his heart. If you should be big. If you're doing God's will, you're big, really? then there's an awful lot of churches around the world that aren't doing God's work. You see, we're not in competition. Lord uses big churches, he uses little churches, he uses churches all over the world for his glory. We don't know why churches, some churches are big and some are small. We don't know, sometimes it's good reason, sometimes bad, I don't know. The point is, we're not in competition. We're not saying, you're right, I'm wrong, you're you're wrong, I'm right, I don't wanna mess that up, because of your size or whatever you do. We're not in competition. And other churches outside of this Southern View Chapel may do things a little differently than us. We're not in competition. The Lord may bless them in some ways. He doesn't bless us. We're not in competition. We are one body, and we are united together as one body, even if we, when we differ over some things, because we, are, we all belong to Jesus Christ. A football team that begins to tackle its own people doesn't win many games, does it? And so I think we need to be careful with that. Also, there's no independence in the body. We live in an independent age where people want to do their own thing. Many church leaders today and many church organizations are not accountable to anybody. And if you're reading the news at all, you realize there's a lot of fallout because of that. There's not accountability in many cases. And whenever in a physical body, parts of the body go rogue and do their own thing and does not obey the head, that's tragedy, isn't it? That isn't beautiful, it's tragedy. The Lord has called us to work together as a body of Christ, not in independence. And then one more thing, look at chapter 12, verse 7. Here's our thesis statement of the whole chapter. Maybe chapters 12, 13, and 14. The main thesis he's supporting throughout these chapters is this. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is why the Lord gifts us. That is why the Lord places us in a body of Christ, for the common good, for the good to one another, to build up one another. You ever heard anybody say, or maybe you said it yourself, "I, I don't go to such and such church. I used to, but I don't go there anymore because they're not meeting my needs. Well, as you think about that a little bit, show me a verse of scripture that says the church is created to meet your needs. You're going to have a hard time finding that. But all the way through the Word of God, you find this, this, uh, the opposite. The Lord has called us to build one another up, to, to minister for the common good, to unselfishly serve one another. Now, I hope that this church, and if you're from another church this morning, that you, the church you go to is a church that does build you up, that does strengthen you, that does help you walk with Christ. I, I hope you're, you're going to such a church, and if that church is not faithful to the gospel, you need to find another church. But in the body of Christ, in a church that is actually preaching and teaching the truth, we're called to build one another up, focusing on one another, not on focusing on ourselves. Now, with all that said, we think about how the body functions here in the diversity and how it works. Every part of the body works for the good of the whole, right? So let's think of our physical bodies one more time. When my stomach says it's time to eat, I'm hungry. Then I, the rest of my body goes to work to satisfy the stomach. Uh, my, my feet go to the refrigerator. My hands reach in. I, I find something. I stick it in a microwave or whatever we do with it. And then I, I take it to my mouth. And my, my mouth likes it. My tongue's happy. My teeth chew. My, I swallow. It goes down. It goes to my stomach. It all works together. Right? We're all working in harmony. But what happens if the stomach is selfish? And says I'm going to keep all that food for myself. I'm not going to process it. I'm not going to send out nutrients. I'm just going to keep it right there. Some of you felt that way recently, probably. It feels like a lump, right? You feel awful. You're not healthy. The the stomach is not following the rules and not working in harmony. And when that happens, you're not healthy. The body, to the extent that it works in harmony as one, to that extent, it is healthy. And that's the body of Christ as well. We're diverse. We have different ministries, different abilities, different giftedness, but we work together for the good of the body of Christ. That's our calling as Christians, and that's why we find no Christians in the New Testament who were not part of a body of Christ. Some of them weren't doing very well. Some of them had big struggles, but they were all part of a body of Christ. God has called us to that. Now, I want to go to verse 13 and look at the means of the unity. We see here that that we do have unity, But how did it happen? And we look at a verse of scripture that unfortunately has become extremely controversial and divisive. And I hope by the time we're done in the next few minutes that you will see there's there's really no controversy here whatsoever. Or at least there should not be. Verse 13 says this, For by one spirit, notice the unity again, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, Whether slaves are free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. What a unity there. The question is, how did we get to the place where we have one body that we're part of? What is the means of our unity, our oneness? Well, Let me start, look at this from two angles. First of all, the confusion. Why are people confused about this verse and about the issue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What confuses people? Well, the the issue here is that some years ago, back in the late 1800s, a a group of Christian people who loved the Lord, I believe, began to teach that there was a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. There was a first baptism when you became a Christian, but then there was a second one later, and you needed the second one to become actually a a solid Christian, a, a growing Christian, a mature Christian. You needed a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you didn't have that second baptism, you were a second-class Christian, and you weren't up to snuff with the first-class Christians who had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As time went on into the 1900s and later on, that particular doctrine became more sophisticated, and to eventually a group of Christians began to claim that that, every, that you had to have this second work of grace, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you had to have the evidence of speaking in tongues to know you had it. And so began a whole movement that was based upon the baptism of the Holy Spirit. One of the leaders of that movement from years ago, Dennis Bennett, wrote a book called The Holy Spirit and You. says that speaking in tongues comes with the package. And I quote from him, Speaking in tongues is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is what happens when you are baptized in the Spirit. And it becomes an important resource to help you continue by being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want to understand the New Testament... You need the same experience that all its writers had. Now, how do you get this baptism then? If that's true, how do you receive the baptism? By asking for and believing it. Here's what Bennett says. He says, here's a prayer you should pray. Dear Lord Jesus, please baptize me in the Holy Spirit. And let me praise God in a new language beyond the limitations of my intellect. Thank you, Lord. I believe that you're doing this right now. Now, we're going to discuss, when we get to chapter 14, the purposes for tongues. And I trust we'll understand it when we get there. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about this second work of grace uh, called baptism of the Holy Spirit and evidence in speaking in tongues. Now, here's the problem. You ready? Here's the problem. Nowhere do the scriptures command us to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nowhere we ever find a command to do so verse 13 makes it very clear we have all and he's talking about the Corinthians who we know by now are not a really high class group of Christians he is telling that all believers have been baptized by the Holy Spirit all of us three times he says that in one verse there is no question that all believers have been baptized by the Holy Spirit this is not a command to be baptized by the Spirit it's a statement of fact it is true if you are a Christian all Christians have been baptized by him. And Paul clearly says in verse uh, 13, not 13, verse, uh, over in verse 30, he says, all do not have the gifts of healing, do they? All, all do not speak with tongues, do they? Here in this church, where they had the gift of tongues, we'll talk about it later, he makes it extremely clear that not all Christians speak in tongues. And so, the statement that you have to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit... And the evidence is speaking in tongues is categorically unbiblical. Never ever taught at any place in the Word of God. And therefore that's why so many are confused. Therefore, Scripture does not teach that you ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't teach that. Scripture does not teach that some are baptized and others are not. All Christians are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Scripture does not teach that tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's never even implied in the Word of God. These are made up by other people outside of Scripture. Now there's the confusion. Now it's not hard though, and this is the heart of our church, I trust, it's not hard to know what the baptism is about if you go back to the Scriptures. And so at chapter 12, verse 13 is the only, now get this, the only place in the New Testament that explains to us the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now to understand it, I want to to do two things. If you can go with me back to Acts chapter 1 for just a moment. And here's where some of the confusion comes in. The Apostle uh, Luke, I mean, records for us a couple statements about the baptism of the Spirit that we want to look at. What does he say? He's quoting Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Gather them together. Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father promised, which he said, you heard from, of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus promised the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That took place in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit came upon the people and the ch- birthday of the church took place go back to chapter 11 of Acts however Peter has now get, uh, brought the gospel to the Gentiles and he is re- re- uh, reporting back to the leaders of Jerusalem and he says this in Acts 11:15. 15 he says that as I began to speak the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning what's he talking about Acts chapter 2 the Holy Spirit fell on us at the beginning the baptism took place at the beginning now verse 16, and I remember the words of the Lord, which, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Something happened between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 11. Jesus prophesied the baptism of the Spirit. Peter said it happened. Acts chapter 2 demonstrates it. The baptism of the Spirit came upon all believers at the time of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and it happens to every Christian since. Now, let's go back to our passage. Having said that, one of the things I want you to note is while Acts tells us that the baptism was coming, and even the Gospels do, it never tells us why. It never tells us what it's about. So if you want to know biblically what the baptism of the Spirit is about, it's really very simple. Verse 13 is not complicated. So let me look at it with you. Here's what Paul has to say through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, once again, it says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now I want you to note the words here very carefully. Note that he says by one spirit, that the means of our baptism is the spirit, the Holy Spirit. We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek. We are all made to drink of one spirit. Now here's what's happening. Paul says that we were baptized by the means of the Holy Spirit into what? One body. The purpose of spirit baptism is to immerse us into the body of Christ. That's his purpose. Who baptized us into the body of Christ? Christ Himself, Jesus Christ, through the instrument of the Holy Spirit, baptizes us into or immerses us into the body of Christ. The one singular purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to to, to take believers and instantaneously at the moment of salvation bring them into the one body of Christ, the Church of Christ. That is the only purpose, biblically, for the purpose for b- baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Christians have all been baptized by Christ. Every one of us. So if you feel left out somehow, you're not. The Lord has blessed you and gifted you with the baptism of the Spirit. He saved you and then he placed you through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit into his church. And he's talking here not about a local church. He's talking about the universal church. But that universal church is manifested in a local church. Uh, universal churches don't do anything. It's local churches, people that do things. So we're, we're a mirror of the universal church. We're all baptized in the body of Christ, no matter what our ethical, ethnic makeup might be, our social status, our background, our church affiliation, uh, our traditions. If we are in Christ, even when we don't always agree with one another about certain things, if we are in Christ, we are part of one body. And there's a lot of applications for that. One is graciousness. That we may not always agree with one another, but but we are in His body. Another is that we work together in harmony to accomplish the purposes God gives us. But the point of the passage is this. I and you, if you're a Christian, are part of the body of Jesus Christ. Every one of you. There's no second-class Christians in this room. There's no, I've got it, you don't. No hierarchy of Christianity. There's maturity levels... But there's no hierarchy. There's no people who've got it and others that don't. You are baptized into the body of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, because of that, as we're in Christ, our task here is to glorify Jesus Christ. Now, I want to kind of pull it together with one little silly illustration. Let's say uh, you have worked yourself really hard for years and years to be a great athlete. And you won... A gold medal at the Olympics as a result of that, and you brought your medal home. You put it in a safe deposit box so that it would be safe and nobody would ever do they want anything to it, steal it or something. And it's there. You 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 have should you deserve the honor for your success, and you have that medal in the box. What would happen if the local hometown people started praising your safe deposit box? They started writing songs about your deposit box. They started, they started worshiping almost your deposit box. What, what, how silly is that? The box does its job. It's, it's a safety feature for my medal, but, but I don't praise the box, nor do I praise the medal. Nobody needs it, it's just a piece of metal. The honor goes to the one who won the prize. They would be honored. When we look at the scriptures like this, here's what we've got. The whole purpose of the Holy Spirit bringing us into the body of Christ is to honor Jesus Christ, not the Holy Spirit. Remember, John 16, 14 says that the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit in relation to Christ is to bring glory to Christ, to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit is not about the business of glorifying himself, nor is the Holy Spirit about the business of us glorifying a local church. Any church, including our church, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to draw attention to Jesus Christ, to honor Jesus Christ, to glorify Jesus Christ. When anything gets in the way of that, including sidetracking on doctrines about the Holy Spirit, something's wrong because the Holy Spirit does not showcase Himself. He showcases the glory and the magnificence of Jesus Christ. And we as a body of Christ have the privilege of spending our whole lives, our whole lives... Glorifying Jesus Christ, lifting up his magnificence, proclaiming his greatness to the world. That's our task, that's our privilege, and we do that because of the ministry of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you now for your word, I trust these passages that we've looked at today are helpful, and will help us uh, primarily, Lord, focus on you, and love you more, and love you deeper, I trust that's the case, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.